a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Neha Anand. And I'm Allie Burgess. In today's episode, I talk with fellow medical student Thomas about medical misinformation. Some have said that COVID is an infodemic with all the challenges in separating myth from fact as we learn and cope with the virus. And there's a term that I just recently learned about called science by press conference. Uncertainty or information framing can make health communication quite difficult. There is definitely so many barriers to effective communication. But first, let's break down some recent headlines. A new study from CDC researchers using modeling estimated that nearly 60% of the spread of the novel coronavirus comes from people with no symptoms. That's asymptomatic transmission. This reinforces the message that public health experts have been trying to relay throughout the pandemic. The transmission of the virus can happen without people even knowing that they are infected. Interestingly, misinformation has been spreading across social media that another study found asymptomatic transmission does not occur. The false claim began on Instagram and cites a study of Wuhan, China residents after lockdown was relaxed in May 2020. The authors themselves have said that the study does not rule out asymptomatic individuals are not infectious, but clearly this has been misrepresented in social media. Yeah, misinterpretation of published studies can definitely be one avenue that misinformation can catch fire. Even misinterpretation of public health experts could happen. For example, just this past week, a report from the White House Coronavirus Task Force claimed that there was a new highly contagious variant of the coronavirus that emerged in the U.S. itself. However, these claims were based off of speculations from Dr. Deborah Burks, the coronavirus response coordinator. She had hypothesized that the surge in cases in the U.S. may be caused by a U.S. variant of the virus, in addition to the U.K. variant. But CDC officials have issued a statement that neither researchers or analysts have identified a specific U.S. strain. But before the statement was released, the news had already spread to CNN and other news outlets. Speaking of surges in COVID-19 cases, January has the potential to be the worst month of the pandemic thus far in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. This is likely due to spread from increased travel from the holidays. As we've said before in this podcast, you can do your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus by wearing a mask, avoiding indoor gatherings and crowded events, keeping physical distance from others, and continuing good hand hygiene. But on a lighter note, we've made it to 2021. The new year is a time when a lot of people think about resolutions and things to change about their daily habits. So we decided to look into the scientific literature about New Year's resolutions. And apparently there have been many peer-reviewed studies on the topic. For example, a large-scale randomized study published included over a thousand participants from the general public. And it studied the impact of support that they received for their resolutions. The most popular resolutions were related to physical health, weight loss, and eating. And at a one-year follow-up, guess how many responders consider themselves successful in sustaining their resolutions? I don't know, like less than a half? Actually, just over a half, 55%. Participants with approach-oriented goals were more successful than those with avoidance-oriented goals. So for example, an approach-oriented goal would be to incorporate healthy snacks into your diet, 
versus an avoidance oriented goal is no chocolate allowed. Exactly. And also the study showed that those that received some support were more successful than the other two groups. Another study focused on the combination of specific goals instead of abstract superordinate goals as a way to boost performance and effort. A study published in Applied Psychology showed that by combining both abstract and specific goals, this actually increases effort after three months into the new year. Instead of saying, I'm going to be more healthy, someone should say, I'm going to exercise three times per week to make it more specific. So bringing it full circle, I think the world's resolution for 2021 is to finally end the pandemic. Definitely. But in order to do that, we definitely need better communication to the general public about topics in science and medicine. On that note, let's transition to my conversation with Thomas Lay about health communication. Hi, everyone. It's Thomas here. And Allie. So today we're talking about medical communication, information, misinformation, and you. Some have said that COVID is an infodemic with all the challenges in separating myth from fact as we learn and cope with the virus. We wanted to start this podcast by sharing what some of our followers on Instagram have heard from family and friends. So here are some misinformation nuggets that our followers have shared with us. The first one comes from lee.tn.lay who shared regular herb infused sauna will keep COVID at bay. You know, I think if we all have a little bit more regular herb infused saunas in our lives, I think not only COVID, but a lot of things in our lives will improve. (laughs) Joy shared that you can only get COVID from strangers. And I think the implication of that is actually really funny because that just means that being closer with people helps protect you against diseases, which would be nice, right? It's, it's nice in an ideal world. Stranger danger. Medeus and Erica uh, both submitted that you will be sterile if you get the vaccine. Not great, but you know, moving on. From Damavandi, the leader of Iran said that the American vaccine does not work. And so this question I have when hearing this is like, what causes a vaccine to be American? Because if, for example, a German dude worked on the vaccine, is it still considered American vaccine? Like, is our nationality inherently intrinsically attached to whether a vaccine works? You know, this, is, this brings up some good philosophical questions. The next one from Maggie is, masks have killed more people than COVID. Wow. Well, Ali, both of us have done our surgery rotations where we wore masks like almost every day for eight plus hours. We're still standing strong. We're still standing. We're, we're fighters. That's what we are. <laughs> and the last one I think is my favorite from Brittany, who shared, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And I hear this and I'm like, the mark of the beast is being presented as a bad thing, but it sounds kind of metal. It sounds kind of cool, and I think I want it. I want the mark of the beast. I mean, you can get it, you know, coming to a hospital near you. (laughs) So we could do a separate episode debunking each of these myths, but we thought it would be interesting to take a step back and discuss misinformation in the medical community and in public health at large. 
So yeah, a little bit of history. The anti-vaxxer movement has now been getting a lot of traction recently with the COVID vaccine, but it's interesting to consider that the anti-vax sentiment actually goes back centuries. It started in the 18th century when Reverend Edmund Massey in England called vaccines diabolical operations in 1772. And he believed that vaccines were an attempt to impose God's punishment upon man for their sins. Yeah, that's, that's pretty serious. So ever since Reverend Edmund Massey and his anti-vax sentiments, the anti-vax movement waxed and waned for the next couple of centuries, but most prolifically hit a peak with the publishing of former physician Andrew Wakefield's paper in 1998 in The Lancet on the MMR vaccine and how the MMR vaccine can cause autism. The paper he published has since been redacted due to concerns about data fabrication and study design issues. And there's also been major financial conflicts that have come out since then. For example, Dr. Wayfield tried to create diagnostic kits for autistic children for autistic enterocolitis or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But the damage has since been done and the story has been taken over by celebrities such as Jenny McCarthy, who funnily enough wrote the foreword for Andrew Wakefield's book. Jenny McCarthy claimed her child had developed autism due to a vaccine and has been very, very vocal on this matter and has come on different media outlets to promote her views. She's since been criticized multiple times for her false claims, but this kind of uh, sentiment has really taken hold in the public viewpoint and in the media. And so we can really look at Jenny McCarthy and Dr. Angie Wayfield for their part in increasing the number of vaccine-preventable outbreaks in the world that have popped up recently, for example, with measles. So let's be very clear and say that the link between vaccines and autism has been debunked. That's not to say that there aren't very, very rare risks from vaccines, but there's indeed a lot of anti-science claims about vaccines that have been recently floating around. And with that in mind, there's a term that I just recently learned about called science by press conference. And it's when scientists put an unusual focus on publicizing results of research in the media. And so that can kind of lead to problems that we've just encountered, for example, with Andrew Wakefield really publicizing his results about vaccines causing autism. And it's really a dangerous concept to do something like this because the incentives of the media and public health and science don't necessarily align together. For example, the goals of the media is to try to promote whatever will be interesting and attract people's attention of the day. While the goal of public health is to promote um, solid claims based upon science and the available data. So there is kind of a fundamental difference in objectives. This all leads today to our current topic, which is regarding health communication both on a broad sense in terms of public health, but also how you can better improve as a consumer of health news from the media, from the government, and from your physician. So let's start by saying that health communication, it's definitely difficult. It seems like it would be intuitive that if something improves health, it would be easy to sell it to the public. But of course, it's not that simple. Yeah, there's definitely so many barriers to effective communication. So I think the best way to illustrate this is to have some examples. So let's start with the opioid epidemic, or that is the high number of deaths due to opioid overdose in the U.S. 
there has been a change in how this issue has been framed historically. In the past, it was presented as an issue of addiction that warrants tougher drug laws and persecution of individuals who are addicted and they just like can't stop themselves and we should really like, like throw all these people in jail and really have harsher penalties for these people. So imagine kind of hearing that and the public response toward that versus framing the opioid epidemic as it is more recently as a systemic issue due to overprescriptions by physicians and pushed by evil pharmaceutical companies. And so the first approach really demonizes people as an opioid addiction as a personal moral failure versus the second approach kind of talks about how society as a whole needs to band together to get rid of this issue. And it's really everyone's fault. And so you can see how the framing of this issue can really affect public perception and how we view something like the opioid epidemic. Definitely. And something more recent is the issue of wearing masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't know about you, Thomas, but initially back in March when masks weren't recommended officially, it was really interesting. My experiences with seeing people with masks, for example, I remember one of the times that my mom went to the grocery store and she came back and she was saying how everyone was wearing wearing a mask that seemed better than hers. And, you know, we needed to step up our mask game as a family as we were continuing to go out. And I think in the beginning was really confusing what to what to do. Yeah, definitely. I think that's been so interesting to me, the stigma surrounding wearing masks, because back in the early stages of the pandemic, depending on where you were, like if you wore a mask, people might stare at you because you're wearing a mask and they're like, oh my gosh, this person is so like rule following, I guess. It's just, it was weird to wear a mask versus in other places, if everyone else was wearing a mask and you weren't, then everyone would look at you and be like, oh gosh, what is this person doing? They're so not in the know. And so it was just so much stigma surrounding it. Yeah. And these days, I think that, you know, anyone I see that's not wearing a mask, I'm like, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and so I think that this kind of points to the fact that the CDC flip-flopped so much during the beginning of the pandemic on whether to recommend wearing masks. And the end result was that no one knew what to do. And it became a highly politicized issue that made everything worse. And so this highlights that one of the large reasons that health communication is difficult is because as we learn in medicine, everything has nuance. And that's why we go to medical school to be able to understand the nuances behind treatment and recommendations. But the problem is that it's easier to just get small snippets of information out of context. And I think what was particular about the case of mask wearing is that in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of data and evidence about how effective wearing certain types of masks would be. And so the CDC didn't make a blanket statement from the beginning. And so it made the message that they were trying to convey a lot more difficult. So now we'll talk about what you can do as a consumer in cases when you're not necessarily the expert, but how you can improve your consumption of medical information. Yeah, so if we're talking about medical information, the first thing is to, to the best of your ability, do your homework and consider what biases you have. So something that tends to dissuade people from really internalizing information or believing information is your emotional reaction. So is it an emotional feeling? Like, do you not believe this because it's politicized? Does it go against your 
core values. And you would be surprised, right, how something like mask wearing can kind of attack someone's core values. But we, as we've learned, it does based upon people's need for individualism or something like that. And so studies have shown that people that are aware of their own biases are able to combat those same biases. So hopefully just by listening to this podcast, we're giving you a like vaccine booster shot in a sense, in terms of biases and public health information. And you'll be able to recognize when people present biased views to you. Another recommendation we have is to consider your sources, especially in today's day and age when we are spoon-fed content that we are more likely to agree with on social media, it's always good to find reputable sources of information. And really anyone now can be like an influencer and kind of give health information. And so it's really important to consider who exactly is giving you that information. Absolutely. And I think what's important to do is to understand and acknowledge that you may not be an expert and that's okay. Everyone in medicine also knows that a majority of our patients aren't going to be expert on certain topics. And your physician is doing their best to distill highly nuanced and detailed information down to a digestible format that that you should be able to understand. So when you go to the doctor, the advice that you get should always be in the best interest of you. And as a patient, you have the right to ask questions to better understand what your doctor is saying or what a public health expert is saying. And if you don't agree or if you have further questions, you also have a right to get a second opinion. Ali, I totally agree. It goes back to the first point we made. Consider your sources. Would you value the opinion of a celebrity over someone who has had 12 plus years of medical training? You know, probably not. Maybe with some exceptions, we can't say all physicians are perfect or that celebrities may also be very well informed, but those are generally exceptions. One kind of complicating factor about this is celebrity physicians like Dr. Oz, who has come under fire for the past couple of years for promoting some, let's say, unusual claims. Like for example, we should be careful of drinking apple juice because of arsenic in our apple juice or that astrological signs may reveal a great deal about our health. I mean, I'm all for, you know, matching compatibility between my astrological sign and my friends, but I'm not entirely sure how much it relates to our health, but what's your yeah. astrological sign, Thomas? I'm a Taurus. How about okay. you, Ali? I'm Cancer. So that, I mean, that points to a specific health issue, but I'm not. I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. What that is, but what you is know. We'll forge onwards, Ali, <laughs> living our lives. And actually, a study in 2014 by the British Medical Journal concluded that less than half the claims made on the Dr. Oz show were backed by some evidence. And that fell to a third when the threshold was raised to, quote unquote, believable evidence. So in conclusion, I hope we have left you all with a better appreciation of the challenges in health communication. Factors like uncertainty or information framing can make health communication quite difficult, especially as we've seen during this COVID-19 pandemic with a novel virus. And it makes sense why it's difficult. Healthcare is not one size fits all. Every person's medical situation is individualized and unique to them. But we hope that with some of this knowledge of how health information is communicated, you will be better able to figure out how to make the best decisions for yourself. Thanks, Thomas. This was a great way to debrief the influence of misinformation and how we can try to combat it in our daily lives. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 